Hello, and welcome to Making the Museum. I'm Jonathan Alger, and this is a project of C&G Partners, designed for culture. Today, I am joined by Carol Bosser from Smithsonian Institution Traveling Exhibition Service, which has an awesome acronym, SITES. Carol, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jonathan. It's a pleasure to be here. Awesome. So good to have you with us for many reasons. To get started, for people who don't know you, could you tell our listeners who you are and what you do? Sure. As you said, I am a program manager at SITES, which is actually has an even longer acronym. It's Smithsonian Institution Traveling Exhibition Service and Smithsonian Affiliations, getting that in there for my director. And you can think about us as the boots on the ground in 50 states for the Smithsonian. I've been with this position now seven years. And prior to that, I owned my own small consulting company, exhibition development company called CB Services. And I did that job for 20 years. And on the 20th year, I decided I really wanted to go back into working in a single institution. Of course, the Smithsonian is 16 institutions, but there is something really wonderful about having the opportunity as an independent museum professional to work all over the world, do all sorts of projects, meet all sorts of people. I think I logged 46 permanent exhibitions that actually got built and about that many that were just in schematic or planning. And I never would have had that opportunity had I stayed in the mu in a museum. But there's also something really wonderful about being with a group of people and growing together. As you walk into a new client and you start talking about exhibition development and you're really starting from square one, which is great. But after a while, you really would like that group to be with you for square two. So that's that's what I've been doing. <laughs> I love the idea of square two. Where's How come we don't talk about square? We always talk about square one, but what about square two? I think I need a t-shirt, square two. That's pretty awesome. 46 exhibitions, that's great. I always love to ask people who come on the show, Another question, which is the side question, how did you originally get into the business? You talked about the latest thing, the latest switch you did for the last seven years, but what about rewinding the tape all the way back? How did you get into this business? Was it sideways or backwards like a lot of people on the show? Yes. And Jonathan, I am so happy that you are asking that question. And right before we went on the air, you and I were talking about the fact that for four years, I did a podcast called Museum Life. And now you are really following in those footsteps for your program. And the question I ask all of my guests at the beginning was, tell me how you got here. Mm -hmm. And I've heard from many people that, that listen to my podcast. That really was the most interesting thing. Exactly. Exactly. Because, and the theme here is nothing in life is linear. You may start out in a certain way, but you're probably not going to end up where you thought you were going in when you were 21. Mm -hmm. And so I, I have a bachelor's of arts in, in biology. I went ahead and I got a doctorate in biology because I love science and nature. 
And I took a postdoctoral fellowship, and I realized quite quickly that studying and teaching about science, particularly with young people, is not the same as the business of doing scientific research. And so I made a left turn. And I found myself in New Jersey for personal reasons, and I had an opportunity, basically, I, I had an opportunity, I hounded them to give me a job at the Newark Museum in Newark, New Jersey. And in those days, the Newark Museum, which is now called the Newark Museum of Art, was really based on the original founder, John Cotton Dana's vision of science, art, and we would call it technology, but industry, all in the same building, looking at and interpreting things in multidimensional ways. And I was there 10 years, and I was director of the science department, so I was responsible for a collection, I was responsible for exhibitions and public programs and a planetarium and even a zoo in those days. And it was a marvelous experience to understand really the public aspects of museums and their importance. And in those days, the Newark Museum was free. And that meant we got a lot of different people from a lot of different walks of life that came into the building. And my favorite, I've just got to tell you this anecdote, is I was walking through one of our main galleries, permanent collections, art, primarily contemporary art. And there standing side by side, looking at the same piece of art, was a white woman in a Chanel suit. And one, and next to her was one of our favorite beloved houseless individuals who often dressed up in wonderful ways. And today, and that day, he was wearing a Superman cape and a huge Indian feathered headdress. And they were standing next to each other looking at the same painting. And I think that to me says, everything there is to say about the power of museums as public places, because we see and we interact, even if we're not talking to them, we're interacting with different kinds of people. That's a great story. The Superman cape and the Chanel suit. That is a great story. I have been hanging around actually at the Newark Museum recently. We just did a project next door at the Newark Public Library. <laughs> Uh, they inherited the collection of Philip Roth, the novelist, and we did a whole permanent exhibition. So I was like hanging out right in that plaza. They share yep. sort of a plaza right in Newark. That's great. In more intersections. You have a list for today, which is related to everything you just said, which is called The Eight Principles of Traveling Exhibitions. I Not only am I excited about hearing more about that, I am 100% sure that our dear listener is too, because you've got some really interesting stuff here. But first, what inspired you to come up with this list? Obviously, you're at sites now, so you are expert in this area. But what inspired you to come up with this one? When I took the job at, at sites, I had a lot of interpretive planning production shops, but I'd never done a traveling exhibition. Mm. And it has been a huge learning curve. Luckily, I didn't do it alone. I had colleagues to to help me do it. But 
And recently, I've heard some other presentations, other discussions. There was recently a Culture Connect survey that was published about traveling exhibitions, about 140 people were surveyed. Actually, at sites, we have just finished a survey of about 480 sites, individuals talking about traveling exhibitions. And there's something very special and very challenging about them. So that really is the basis of my list. It's a great list. I heard, by the way, side question, but I heard somewhere Maybe you can verify this. Is CITES, is Smithsonian Institution Traveling Exhibition Service and the other things that you said it, said it stands for, the affiliates program, is that the largest traveling exhibition service in the world? Oh, gosh. I saw that somewhere, like on a CITES website or bag because or something. Because we verbally said it. I, it. Of course, it depends on what metric you're talking about. Mm -hmm. We primarily focus on North America and substantially the 50 states and mm -hmm. Puerto Rico, which mm -hmm. is where the Smithsonian has its affiliates and organizations. I think we do have about 30 exhibitions on the road right now. So if you wanted to look at sheer numbers, we might be up there. There, The sites has been in existence now for almost 70 years. And for a very long time, we really were one of the only places where you could get a traveling exhibition other than art museums who do their loans to individual one-on-one -on -one institutions. Since about 2016, 2017, there are a number of other for-profit companies that have gotten into the business of traveling exhibitions. Now, are they bigger? I don't think they have the same number of staff. I think they have very different business models. Several of those do exhibitions throughout the world. Where are you looking at breadth? Are you looking at depth? Are you looking at experience? So it, it it just depends. See, that's a scientist part of me coming out. I'm not going to really be tied down. You, that, the last thing you said was, it depends. It, that's the other t-shirt. Square two on one side, it depends on the other. I love it. All right. I put you on the spot there, but that's certainly sites is huge and well-known and very well-established. So with that as background, let's get right into it. The eight principles of traveling exhibitions. Your first principle is traveling exhibitions aren't temporary exhibitions. And I think I have often in my own career made the mistake of thinking they are the same thing, but they really are not. Can you tell us right. more about that, that dangerous assumption? Exactly. And you're not alone. And I think I've talked to every single exhibition designer that I have ever worked with and all of my friends to help them understand that difference. So a temporary exhibition is going to be in one spot. It's going to be in your museum. It is going to be in a gallery that is a known quantity. You know where the doors are. You know where the windows are. You can install it in more in simple ways. For instance, you can just stick double-sided Velcro on a wall and slap those panels on there. You don't have to worry about weight because it's going to be in one place and unique to a certain footprint. A traveling exhibition needs to be robust enough and simple enough that it can be installed and deinstalled and travel across the country at least 15 times over a three, maybe four year period. It has to be flexible. 
because the spaces it's going into might all add up to the square footage of the exhibition, but it could be in a long, tiny hallway with three doors. It could be in two rooms, and those two rooms could be on different floors. And so you need that kind of flexibility. You also need to make sure that when you install and you deinstall, you're not ripping off the wall. So you have to have a cleat. And and there are also crates, which you wouldn't have you wouldn't have in just a temporary exhibition that's at one one spot. So I think one of you talked about one maybe mistake or mis- misunderstanding that you've had in approaching traveling exhibitions. And the other is the myth that you can take a temporary exhibition that was planned as a temporary exhibition and magically turn it into a traveler. We do that here at the Smithsonian because we find a project that we think is fabulous but wasn't initially planned to be a traveler. And frankly, then we take all the content and we just redesign it and refabricate it and create it, which means traveling exhibitions are also more expensive than just a temporary exhibition. And you need to know that going into it. Can you say more, that last thing you said, the fallacy that not only that temporary exhibition, for all the reasons you mentioned, is absolutely not the same as a traveling one, but the related fallacy that somehow you can turn one magically into the other with little effort, it's related to the initial fallacy. You think they're the same, so you can transform one into the other, but you can't. Because I've had clients in the past make that assumption. And I, frankly, years ago, made that assumption right along with them. And we estimated what it would cost and et cetera, et cetera. And indeed, it came out much more expensive. But I think it was because in that case, we were basically taking a temporary exhibition in one, one venue and doing all the work to make it a temporary exhibition in the next venue. We didn't, never really turned it into a traveling exhibition. It was this mishmash kind of a thing. But I think this is a... I think that's a super valuable insight. And by the way, I should let our listeners know we have a bonus insight at the end, stay to the end, and it's about what traveling exhibitions cost and whether they are profitable for nonprofits. You want to stay to the end to hear that one. So this is a great, this is like the insight of all insights, but the uh, the next one I think is goes with this, right? Number two of our eight, match the exhibition to the realities of the host sites. You mentioned windows, doors, Velcro. Talk to me about what those realities are and how a traveling exhibition needs to be planned for those realities. And how do you, given what you just said, how do you plan for a reality you don't know? Just every exhibition you and I have ever developed begins with asking, who is this for? You know, who's the audience? And of course, the answer is not everybody. It is, there is a defined group. There may be other people that we will touch, but there is a group that we are individualizing. And the same is true for a traveling exhibition. For instance, if your goal is to reach rural America, in fact, one of our, one of sites, subsets is called the Museum on Main Street. And that's exactly what they do. They develop exhibitions that are literally going to go into storefronts or an old mall or maybe a defunct library, something where there's space. But what does that mean? That means that 
whatever is designed to develop has to be so easy to put up. It has to be completely self-contained because there might not even be walls. It needs to maybe not include the Smithsonian's tier four objects like Dorothy's shoes or Lincoln's hat because there are issues related to objects, security, conservation. You may only be working with volunteers, dedicated people, but they've never put up an exhibition before. So our Museum on Main Street program has really specialized on that audience. Another section that we I work with very closely are natural history museums that are associated with universities. These may have a gallery of about 2,000 to 3,000 square feet, but as I said before, it could be cut up into three rooms. Some of those old, wonderful, venerable natural history museums in wonderful universities across the country are still in their original building that really may have been built in 1901 as the library. So they have some conservation issues that need to be identified. There are, are staffing issues. I think we'll get into some of the staffing staffing issues later. And then if you want to do a really big show, 10,000, 15,000 square feet, and there are museums that have that size temporary exhibition space, but there are fewer of them. And of course, most of them sit on the East Coast or the West Coast. So if your goal really was to reach across the country, you may want to rethink who could really take that show. Could we back up for a second? You just mentioned conservation issues. I just want to make sure for some of our audience, could you just define what you mean by conservation? Because there's a more popular term, a more popular right. definition oh, than in our business. Yeah, thank you. It is an inside baseball term. What we're talking about is all objects have to be maintained at a certain temperature level or range so it's not freezing and boiling, and also a relative humidity level that is within a certain range. And all objects have very different requirements, but certainly anything that is made out of natural materials, you know that in your own house, it gets really humid, the doors stick, that's because the wood is swollen. And every time those things happen, if those things happen over 100 years or 200 years, then the object will be damaged. Got it. So it's really when we say conservation there, the definition for the dear listener is about conserving the object from the collection. And that applies to it doesn't have to just be, although things that are, have organic compounds in them, wood and paper and garments and things like that are definitely the sort of first to go. There are some things that contain metal or glass or other things like that that also have their own issues with what kind of air they're in and, and that sort of stuff. Yeah, I think when you're thinking about traveling exhibitions, it's all about, as we're talking here about the realities of the host venue, many of the host venues. I'm really fascinated by the Museum on Main Street. That's a super cool initiative. And obviously, if you're doing it in a storefront, you don't have temperature control at all. Lincoln's hat, Dorothy's shoes, forget about it. Those things are not going to be maintained, so you're going to do something else. But it is going into a storefront or someplace it wouldn't have it otherwise. So it's really a great way to get out to a lot of people. It might be smaller. It might not be as expensive, but it gets to a lot of people. I'm fascinated by that program. That's super. Number three, 
a lot of the I, and I'm a lot of the questions I have about number one and number two I know are going to be answered in one of the later ones. So I'm holding my questions. Number three, traveling exhibitions aren't all the same. There are tiers of traveling exhibitions. Tell us about what those tiers are in the industry. Yes, and basically the tiers relate to size. I've heard colleagues say it's like maximum, medium, mini, like the three bears. But usually looking at over 10,000 square feet, most of those exhibitions that are planned in that kind of environment are anticipating that they're going to go into pretty sophisticated museums because you have to be pretty sophisticated and big if you can devote 10,000 or more square feet to a traveling show. They usually are black boxes, meaning that they have the advantage of having a lighting grid, probably electricity coming down through the ceiling that can probably handle a lot more audiovisual equipment, a lot more what I call splash bang kind of things that are wonderful. But the next tier down is usually you know, 2,500 to 5,000 square feet. And this is a size that really fits a lot of museums and science centers and children's museums across the country. And these are, this is where the issues that I just mentioned really come into play. And of course, then there are different kinds of museums that are focusing more on history. Maybe they want more objects versus science that perhaps wants more, more interactive kind of things, and children's museums, which as we know, children's museums are their own unique wonderfulness of what their audiences require. And then there are exhibitions that are under a thousand square feet, most of those in rural communities, but not all of them. And I have been really surprised over the seven years that I've been at sites and have gotten to know a lot of museums across the country some of the museums that I've always thought did the best shows and really have wonderful community outreach have less than a thousand square feet to host an exhibition. So they're really asking me, can we have this show in this box? So a bunch of questions here. This is, it's fascinating to hear that there's numbers and it's a way that the industry thinks about it. First question is, does, does sites where you are now do all of these different sizes? Yes, but not all at the same time. Again, I was telling you about our museum on Main Street that does our really under a thousand square feet. We do a lot of shows in that about, I would say, 2,000 to 3,000 square foot range, both for natural history museums and and art org art organizations, cultural museums, history museums. We have done a couple of those big blockbusters. The last one of them we did, we were working with the uh, Lucas Foundation before they had their museum. They wanted to get their materials out into the world. And so we did Star Wars, The Age of Costume, looking at all of those wonderful costumes and interpreting those. And that was a pretty big show. I, I knew we would have a direct overlap. I designed the Star Wars and the Art of Costume show in New York. Oh, there you go. And that was super fun. That was like one of my favorite projects ever. We actually went and got the original raw STEM audio files from Lucas and did a whole 
soundtrack, our sound designers in the office basically just gave up after that. They were like, I shall never top this. <laughs> that was awesome. That's an awesome intersect there. So you were saying that you at sites do a lot of in that the middle tier you describe, which is 2,500 to 5,000. I bet there's a lot of variation there. Yes. But that you do a lot in that range, maybe at the lower end of that range, 2,500, 3,000 no. square feet. Is that sort of the wheelhouse for traveling exhibitions in general? Is that like the big middle? Or is that just for sites? Or is that for everybody? What? How do these things... What's you the know, quantity I, in each one? Yeah, and I think what we're going to find is that my eight plus bonus questions really are all interrelated. And it gets to the, why are you doing the traveling exhibition in the first place? Mm -hmm. Now, for the Smithsonian's perspective, our goal is to get Smithsonian content as well as topics that we feel are incredibly important for social discourse across the country across the country. That means that we're not going, we can't or don't want to only limit ourselves to those really large institutions that are on the East and West Coast. We want to reach as many communities as possible and support those institutions across the country that are striving to build a stronger relationship in their communities. So it really is for, because the S in sight stands for Smithsonian, you're going to be doing things that are good for all of your constituents and your venues, but it also advances the mission of the Smithsonian, which you just described is to get these, this content out across the country by putting it across the country. Right. And that's also your mission. It's not just for their mission. It's also your mission to do that. The next number four, these are all great. Number four is traveling exhibitions are stage sets. I don't, I think half or more of the guests on the show have revealed that they come somehow from theater. So I guess I'm waiting for this sort of theatrical moment to, to arrive. Tell me how traveling exhibitions should be thought of as stage sets. I think, and I agree with you, some of the best designers and interpreters and media people I've ever worked with come in some way associated with theater. And theater is a way of making magic, making that wonderful experience by relying on the audience to fill in the blanks. So for instance, you go to Broadway, go to Off-Broadway, the wonderfulness there is that they can put a, a two-dimensional brown tree on the stage, and the actors are understanding, talking about being in the forest, and audiences will immediately start filling in what is their forest. It's like good old storytelling, the more that the visitor can put themselves into that experience, I think is important. Also, there is a practicalness of stage sets, because they have to go up and down and up and down, and sometimes they have to be moved to Baltimore for, for, the, for the production. So I think that there, it is an apt description. But the one that really resonates for me, and actually you brought it up when you were talking about the Star Wars exhibition. Now, that was, that was colossal. 
and it had a lot of costumes, but it was interchangeable and it required interpretation and customization. You did it for New York. Other museums did it for their organizations. So that set, so to speak, is also bringing out the local feelings, branding of that, of that local exhibition. So going into a site show in, say, Kansas should not look anywhere near the same exhibition that you would see in Minnesota. So fascinating. So really you're saying, you say stage set, the implicit idea, I just went to Meow Wolf, one of the Meow Wolves, and, or Meow Wolves? I don't know what it, Meow's Wolf? Sure. I don't know what the plural of Meow Wolf is. Anyway, that, I went to that. And it's incredibly elaborate, obviously. Just an incredible amount of love of just people like hot gluing pipe cleaners to the ceiling 4,000 times over. And that's just in one stall of the restroom. But the traveling exhibition has to be a stage set, which is simpler. There's more to the, it's more like flats or things like that, things that get the imagination going. And it's out of necessity, it has to be that. You can't travel the restroom stall full of pipe cleaners nearly as easily. And that allows it to be modified. That allows it to be lighter. That allows it to be easier to move in. Like that one thing, adopting a off-Broadway or even Broadway aesthetic allows all the other things. And you're going to be telling us about some of those other things, I think, in the points later, because I've seen what the later points are. Just the point. So it all comes together. And maybe that's why all these theatrical people are in this business, because it's the same business. In a way, it is. Cool. Okay, halftime show. Let me do a quick station identification. If you're just joining, you're listening to Making the Museum. I'm Jonathan Alger, and this is a project of CNG Partners Designed for Culture. If you find this show valuable, please help spread the word. You can rate the show in Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And also in Apple Podcasts, you can also write a review. Or you can just tell a friend to check out makingthemuseum.com for everything about this podcast and the newsletter. Now back to the show. Today, we're talking with Carol Bossert about eight principles of traveling exhibitions. And next up is number five, five out of eight, size constraints matter. And I think I know what you're getting at there, but how do size constraints, how are size constraints so important in the traveling exhibition business? So we've talked about the size. Obviously, you can't fit 10, you can't fit a 5,000 square foot show into a thousand square feet. So you need to understand those parameters, but you also need to understand the size of the truck. Most of our shows travel in an art, air-conditioned, very professional truck. It's 52 feet long. So you have to make sure that you are not building anything, including anything that can't be broken down to fit in that 52-foot truck. You also have to think about the loading dock. And let me tell you, there are a lot of museums that don't really have loading docks. So we've come up with all sorts of ways. In fact, I just had a 16-foot narwhal go through the second floor windows by crane 
in into the proper exhibition space. You have to think about just going through doorways. We couldn't go through the doorways, so we came up with an option. I think in hindsight, had I known four years ago what I know now, I maybe would have des designed that in a little different way. You have to worry about the path you have to take. And remember, as we know, a lot of museums are in historic buildings. They're in old historic homes. The route from the freight elevator to the temporary exhibition space may be very circuitous. And sometimes it might mean that you have a great big freight elevator, but to get up to the second floor, you have to go through the passenger elevator. So we have developed really clear parameters on the design sizes that, an, that a designer can use. We can break things apart. They can become tinker toys, but you can't have something that doesn't break apart. And, and then you have to remember that the, the crates that go around those objects add size. So you may have designed a great platform that breaks into two pieces and it's all at the maximum length, but then you crate it and it adds four more inches and it's not going to go into that passenger elevator. I just love the fact that you said, like, the other day I had to get a 16-foot narwhal in through the window. <laughs> not everybody can say that. That's just not a normal conversation. How you doing, Carol? <laughs> oh, I'm pretty good, although I just had to put a 16-foot narwhal into the window. Oh, isn't that? Those are just the breaks. It's just another Thursday. <laughs> I love that. So the size, it's not only, in other words, I think for the listener to think about this when you're tr doing a traveling exhibition, it's not just about the size of the exhibition when you build it. And it's not just about the size of even where it's going to be and all the shape and all the variation on rooms. It's also the size of every everything in between. The truck is really important. You're in even truck units, right? Or like container units. That, that, that That's a unit. You want to fill it up and you don't want to have, you probably don't want to have another 10% for a second truck that's only 10% full either. You want to fill up a truck one truck, please, not 1.1 trucks. And if you have a second truck, it's 2.0 trucks and not 2.1 trucks, all of that. And then the loading dock and everything else. So you said a minute ago, I'm going to put you on the spot. You said just a moment ago, if I'd known what I'd known now, I probably wouldn't have had a 16. I think you were talking about the narwhal, right? I was. Is that how you say that? Narwhal? Narwhal. 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 Okay. So what would you have done differently? Would you have had two eight-foot narwhals? Well, it's, it's difficult to saw a life-size model of a narwhal in half. Right. Um, however, I, I, to be honest, Jonathan, I would have been much more humble with the number of venues that could have taken that show. And so while I thought, there are 20 venues in the country. They can take this show. It's a great show. And let me tell you that the 12 that have taken it have said, it's a great show. But I can't put it into those other six because I've got a 16-foot narwhal that I can't break in half. So it's also, we'll get to the, the bonus question of how what's the business model here? Right. I think you really have to understand those relationships. Okay, so that was size constraints. That's um, I got my notebook out. I'm scribbling notes as fast as I can. I'm sure other people do too, because these are this is a lot of news we can use. Number six, we just talked about size constraints. Number six is weight constraints. Weight constraints 
matter? Now you've got me thinking about the truck. Is it more than the truck? How do weight constraints matter? All right. So your truck pulls in and now you have to get the crates off the truck. Now we've worked with some pretty large crates, but then how are you going to get it off? Does the venue have a mechanical lift? Are they going to be using pallet jacks? If the venues that you're targeting really only have those mechanical pallet jacks that are really good for, you know, moving a single little case of, I don't know, political pins, then the size of a big crate is going to be a little bit beyond them. So you have to be looking at the sizes of the crates and the, and, and the trade-offs of the size. And then you get to individual elements. And remember that everything that comes out of the crate has to be either hung on the wall with a cleat. And think about it. I always think about when I'm in an airplane, and thank God I don't have to do it very much anymore. But when I did, the seat you always wanted in coach was the one next to the side exits. But then they tell you, you might have to do this alone and it's 50 pounds. Are you ready to handle that? Now, I can say yes, because 50 pounds is the same weight as a whole set of flakes of hay for my horses. I can still do that. But if you can't, or if the size is so wide that you you can't figure out how you're going to use both of your arms to do it, then you need to find a way that you can reduce the weight. And the final issue, and I, we could do a whole nother hour on the sustainability of exhibitions and traveling exhibitions in particular, but the heavier the cargo in the truck, the more gas it's going to use to get across the country. So lighter, leaner, faster. And when you said one thing a couple of times, cleats, I know what that means, but I'd love to just zero back in on that. And could you define cleat for our audience? Sure. So it's a it's a wedge that half of the wedge sits on the object that you're hanging on the wall, and the other half of the wedge sits actually on the wall itself. You drill holes and you put that half of the wedge there. It's a sophisticated way of hanging a picture. Um, that you would do in your home. We use wooden cleats because you can take them on and off and on and off and on and off 15, 20 times. So it's almost like a little, like the part that goes on the wall is like a teeny weeny little shelf. Or not, it could be a very wide shelf, but it doesn't stick out into the room much. And the part that is on the piece of art or the other thing that you're hanging is basically a complementary part that just notches right down into that shelf and it tightens right up there and keeps itself on the wall. Is that fair to say? That is, that's excellent. Now, cleats are great. Cleats are your friend. And when you make them out of wood, it's as long as you just take one piece of wood and you cut it right down the middle the long way at an angle. And when you do that, if you imagine what I mean by that, you set your saw at an angle. And when you do that, you end up with a cleat. Put one half on the wall, put the other half on the art, make sure it's the correct half. And then it'll stay right on there. And nobody knows that they can just lift it off, but they can. That's right. Maybe I shouldn't have said that. All right. So that makes all the sense in the world. The heavier the cargo, the more gas. Weight is a constraint that's important. Number seven, 
not talking about constraints of weight or whatever, but more intellectual constraints that have to do with physical space. Number seven, traveling exhibitions cannot rely on linear storytelling. Why not? Because it's going to go into a different confirmation in every gallery that you come to. You might create something that works really, you have a chronology, right? Dinosaur exhibits always had to have a chronology and you start at one end and then you move to the end. But that only works if you have a space where people can enter in one door, go through a long space or a serpentine space and exit out the other door. What if you have a square? What if you have it in two rooms? So not, and that, that word storytelling, if we're trying to get some of the, everybody has, you know, it's like interactive. What do you really mean by that? What do you mean by storytelling? It's the way I look at it is that, that a story has a beginning, middle, and end. It is complete. Now, you might put a lot of stories together, like you put chapters in a book together to get to that reinforced larger theme. But you want to make sure that whatever visitors are doing in a piece of that story is clear and satisfactory. And then they can go on, they can go on to the next thing. And that also, I have found, translates down into one of the things that we all love to do as interpretive planners and designers is that we use graphic colors or some kind of other graphic organizing principles. So section A is all blue and section two is all yellow. And that works really well in a temporary exhibition. But there are times that there's a panel in the yellow section that really has to go into the other section, and it works as a story. It works from the visitor's perspective. But then the visitor's walking through, and they probably don't notice this, I notice this, is that you're in the red section, all of a sudden there's a yellow panel. So there can be some constraints there. So I think we, there are lots of other graphic organizing principles Many of our designers use those. I'm sure you do too. But again, it's getting out of that mindset of, oh, I'm in this space and this is how I'll tell the story. So I did a few episodes back, I did a podcast on Richard Saul Werman's ultimate way of organizing all information called Latch, which is all information has to be either by organized by location, L, a alphabetical, T for time, C for category, H for hierarchical. And there's another one, which is no organization at all, which we discovered. But it turns out to be hard to punch holes in that organization. But I think what you're talking about here is not that you can't have story structure, not that you couldn't have a, if it were chronological, you could have it. You're saying you can't rely on the fact that the visitor will have seen a prerequisite section before their current section. You could say the age of the dinosaurs was this many million of years, and here's this era and that era. They're in different rooms on different floors. Go visit them. This is the overall structure. But we need to acquaint you with this project each time you come into any one of the rooms, and we can't assume that you already saw the thing on the first floor. But you can have structure. You just can't rely that people will do it in order, like in a class or a video. Do I have that Correct. right? Yes, absolutely. And the latch idea is, yes, there are only certain ways that, that we as humans organize things. Janet came in and I used to call that the spine of the story. 
So of course you can have a spine and you can have a overarching idea with sections and subsections, but you cannot assume that someone who sees something at this point will remember it when they get to another point. I'm always trying to do like poor man's psychotherapy with my guests. I'm like, I'm like saying, I'm, you just referred to the organization as a spine and you have a PhD in biology. Like, how do these things go together? I'm starting to see a pattern. <laughs> see, this is why I am doing this and I'm not a psychologist because that's truly poor man's psychology. So the next point, this is point number eight, and we might have a bonus after this, but point number eight is traveling exhibitions must consider staffing at the host sites. Now you've mentioned staffing uh, on the side through just about every point that you've been educating us about. And I've noticed that, but I knew a staffing point was coming. Staffing is at the host site is so you were talking about the, does this, is the staff able to lift this up? Can they lift that 50 pound door in the emergency exit? Are there enough staff that they can put up the museum on main street? feels like it's almost like Ikea style with you use the word volunteers before in one of your earlier points. It seems a lot of this has to do with who's at the site. So tell us more about this eighth point that the traveling exhibitions have to consider staffing at the host site. So one of the things that we think we know that happened during COVID, and I think it was probably happening before then, but it really came to a crescendo in, in that pandemic, is that museums were reducing or eliminating their exhibition staff. And and we've seen that staffs have just been reduced, hard to get them to come back. What that means is not only have you lost the bodies that can lift the thing, but you've lost the institutional memory of how they mounted an exhibition. You might have someone who is new to come into the exhibition, head of chief of, of exhibits, but they don't know how to use SketchUp. They might not even know how to really read a floor plan because they haven't had those experiences. So or they might not to, know that building. Or may, might not know that building. Like how do you open, like on a Saturday, I don't have the key, the door seems stuck, you're supposed to know to kick the bottom of it. Exactly. And that is true of media as well. Things that you and I, in all of the projects that we've done, seems so simple, right? You have a linear video that's going to take you through the wilds of Africa, and it's connected to a bright sign. And I know you'll say for our readers, listeners, what's a bright sign? If, <laughs> if No, it's a, it's a controller thing. Clearly, I don't do the heavy media at sites. But I have found that what if those go, what if that goes wrong? What if there is a wire that's broken or something? Yes, we will troubleshoot those things. You call me and I find an answer for you. But if you have no staff to even know how to diagnose the problem, then we can't have that kind of conversation. And then it gets even more, I'm always AR, VR, all that wonderful stuff that really is making magic in some of our themed enjoyment projects. That requires someone has to hand out and clean the headsets or hand out and clean the audio wand. If your staff is so limited that you're lucky to get the lights on in the morning and have people doing a few programs 
maybe you don't have that person or that volunteer that you can dedicate to that project. So, so do you know, when you are sending out, I've never been on the receiving end of like traveling exhibition promotion or something like that, or just presentations about it to be the one choosing. But when Sites is sending out information about the various exhibitions that they offer, and I'm a museum and I'm looking at it, I'm trying to pick, do you include something about the assumption that you have for the museum's staffing? Assumes museum has people to unload, assumes museum has some capacity to turn on, turn things on and off or check a wire or something, and you can call us for troubleshooting. Do different exhibition packages that you send out have different assumptions that are written out? Okay. Yes. There are some general things that we include in, in our contracts. I will say that as most of our exhibits, particularly the ones that are in that 25,000 and under, we toot our own horn a little bit we provide very detailed installation packages, deinstallation packages. We also will work with each individual venue to help them lay out their design, work with them for developing programs. We like to be really strong collaborators. But we try not to have, we try to design our exhibitions so that we do not have to travel staff to help install it. And part of the reason for that is financial, because the, if we have to travel to someplace for installation and deinstallation, that's a lot more travel costs that go on top of the venue's fee uh, to book the exhibition, the travel, they have to pay that travel cost and then they have all of their own customization things that they're doing. So the prices can get really expensive very quickly. So we try to reduce that. We do say that we expect uh, our exhibitions will take a week to install. That's five days. And that it will require four dedicated people during that week. And then if we have a special interactive or if we have a special something else, we will lay that out. This is what you also need to know that will be required. 16-foot narwhal, things like that. Yeah, ability to take your windows down. You mentioned that you give out some kind of a manual or instructions. I'm imagining Ikea flat pack instructions with a little cartoon character holding a screwdriver and staring at it. But in the past, we've done some, I've done some exhibits of travel in the past and we actually at one point made a, was a particularly tricky little plywood joint. We made a little video that venues could see on YouTube to figure out this little thing. We thought that was easy. What form do does the instruction that you send out take? Is it written? Is it visual? Is it diagrams? How far do you go? Where we, it's interesting that you said that we are in a transition of moving to more video installation packages. Currently, ours are, as you say, everybody uses the word Ikea, but we also will have real photographs of, here's a hand going into this screw. Here's what the screw looks like. We think that we do that rather well. COVID meant that there were a couple things that we knew early on we couldn't get there even if we needed to, so we did do some videos, but that also means that we have to have had the luxury of time 
to have installed the whole exhibition, say, at the fabricators or at the craters, so that we can do those, those detailed videos. And we hope to do more of that. And we also are investigating the option of doing some free drop-in. So you want to host one of our traveling exhibitions. What does that mean? And particularly addressing the issues that this, our particular survey has really shown that the installation and the capacity of that staff is so important in making the decision of what traveling exhibition that you're going to take. Great. Okay. There were more developments coming soon from sites on that one. So that was number eight. Now we've been promising there is going to be a bonus. This is a list of eight, but there is a ninth. And bonus number nine, drum roll, do traveling exhibitions make money? I'm sure that's a question that everyone will be very interested in. We should say specifically, the question really is, do traveling exhibitions make money in the nonprofit sphere? Maybe right. you could talk a little bit first before you, even more of a drum roll, before we answer the question, you've mentioned a couple times, or at least once so far, that there are for-profit companies that are traveling exhibitions around the world. So presumably the for-profit companies are making a profit because they are for-profit. Is that the case or are they not making a profit? I know many of the people that work in these various for-profit traveling exhibition programs and Yes, they have to make enough money to keep the lights on and pay their staff. They also have some very different models of price sharing, cost sharing that I think have allowed them to do that. They're also, the bigger ones are traveling the Titanic materials. So we're talking really large and we're talking for ven for venues that can really pay for that, that what is a very high price tag. Getting to our size, even the Star Wars, which was a very large show, we tried to keep the cost as modest as we could to cover our direct costs. Now, we are the Smithsonian. We're a federal organization. Many of us are paid out of a federal pot of money that comes from Congress. So we certainly don't need to ask people to pay us for what their tax dollars are already paying. Right, right. But there is, there's a cost for it. Do we make money? No. Do we try to break even, at least with our direct costs having to do with the design and fabrication and crating? Yes, we try to do that. Got it. But, so it's the equivalent of you. You help. You try to make sure that when you travel everything around, you do all this sort of all this sort of stuff that you on your out of pocket because you are part of the federal government. Your out of pocket expenses that you're spending on top of your actual program and your salaries and your administration to just keep the lights on. That that's the part that gets covered. Yes, that's what that that's the goal. And of course, if we have thirty shows and maybe one is eking out a little bit more and one is not right. doing so well. We try to level it out. We do also go go after or seek corporate or foundation funding. Mm -hmm. And I do know several of the more successful nonprofit 
organizations across the country use that model as well. They will go out, they'll have a great idea, they will go out, they will seek grant funding. Sometimes it's like through the National Science Foundation or National Institutes of Health. And then that is what will pay for a large percentage of the development of the exhibition. Got it. So what is the answer? There's a few answers here to bonus question number nine. Do traveling exhibitions make money? And it sounds like, yes, they can. But in the case of sites, as a entity of the federal government, that your goal is not to make a profit. You are not intending to make a profit per se. So what's the answer to the question? I'm going to fill it in for you because you said as a scientist, there's only one answer to every question. Do exhibitions, do traveling exhibitions make money? What is your answer? It depends. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, it depends. But it can be done. Obviously, it is being done. And it sounds like what you're saying, the subtext, if I read between the lines, is if you set out to do it, you can do it because there are for-profit entities that are actually doing it and they've been around for a while. There's some good news in there for people who might be wanting to do it for that reason. Okay, quick recap. This was our list for today. We were, we just went through the eight principles of traveling exhibitions. Number one, traveling exhibitions aren't temporary exhibitions. Ha ha. Number two, match the exhibition to the realities of the host sites. Number three, traveling exhibitions aren't all the same. We talked about the size tiers. Number four, traveling exhibitions are stage sets. Super cool. Number five, size constraints matter. Number six, weight constraints matter. Number seven, traveling exhibitions can't rely on linear storytelling. And number eight, tra traveling exhibitions, especially now, must consider staffing at host sites. Bonus question number nine, do traveling exhibitions make money? Carol Bosser, PhD, is here to tell us it depends, because that is what a scientist would say for good reason, but it can be done. Did I get it all right? That sounds pretty good. All right. News that our listeners can use. Carol Bossert, it has been great to have you on the show. This is super, really a lot of get out your notebook moments happening here. If listeners would like to get in touch with you, what is the best way for them to do that? Email, website? Email, LinkedIn? which is my last name and first initial, bossertc at si.edu. Great. We'll put that in the show notes also for people who didn't catch that or they're out for a jog. Okay. Great to have you on the show. Super. I Thank you so much, Jonathan. It was delightful to do this and fun to talk about traveling exhibitions. Thank you very much. Awesome. And thank you for being on the show as a past podcast or radio actual host yourself. It is an honor to have someone who's in the business on the show as well, talking about the new thing that you're doing. You're really, you're like checking boxes like crazy here. So again, thank you so much. Let's see. I think we covered it. Thank you, dear listener, for your time. In exchange, I hope this episode did give you some news you can use. If you'd like to get in touch with me or you have an idea for the show, go to makingthemuseum.com and hit contact. You can also find me in on LinkedIn under Jonathan Alger. I'm always looking out for new links in or at the website of my firm, C&G Partners, which you can find on good old Google. Okay, that's it for this episode. By the way, did you know this podcast has an older sister? It's a very short newsletter every weekday under the same name. One quick insight each day for museum leaders, exhibition teams, and visitor experience pros. You can subscribe also at makingthemuseum.com. Big subscribe button in the menu at the top. Meanwhile, I'm Jonathan Alger. 
and I hope you'll join me next time for Making the Museum. Bye for now.